and welcome back to the Ben Motorcycle Adventures podcast, your hub for everything off-road, dual sport, and adventure motorcycle. My name is John. I will be your host. Let's just get right into it. Episode number seven, Ben Motorcycle Adventures podcast. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for downloading this podcast. I'd love to see those downloads stack up. And most importantly, love to see all of that positive feedback. So again, thanks for sharing. And we're going to continue to deliver content. Tonight is no exception. Raising the bar. I've got a great guest on and his name is Keith. Now I managed to connect with Keith a couple weeks ago. We exchanged a few emails. We got hooked up on Skype and he delivered the goods in his interview. He is a seasoned motorcycle adventurer, if you will. And I think that's an understatement. Baja, Utah, Colorado, Continental Levide, Patagonia, all these bucket list places. He's been on a motorcycle and that's just scratching the surface. He has been all over the map, all over the place. And he's done it on small bores too. So for all you guys with your 250s and your 350s saying that they're not big enough to get out on the Continental Divide or Backcountry Discovery Route, Keith would probably tell you otherwise. So yeah, I think I'm just going to cut to the chase. Uh, You guys don't want to hear from me. I'll hook up with you after the interview. And uh, you know what? Without further ado, let's hear what Keith has to say. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Keith, thanks for joining the show. You're an avid adventurer. You just recently got back from a long ride in Mexico. You've ridden Utah and Colorado BDRs twice, so we're here to hear your story, listen to your experiences, and and just pick up on some of the things you learned along the way with some of your travels. Delighted to help. uh, Delighted to share my enthusiasm for both of those rides. Where would you like to start? Uh, You know what? I'm a big fan of Colorado, so let's start there. Okay. Um, Two years ago, I had the opportunity to ride the uh, Colorado BDR with a group um, that had organized it. And I was on a WR250R, had the larger range fuel tank. Suspension had been improved just a bit, and it had uh, racks on the back so I could uh, carry my gear. The way this ride was set up is we had a support van. So you could throw your overnight bag in the support van. And we all had GPSs. And the tracks are readily available online. There's a guy called GPS Kevin Adventure Rides. And you can go to his website and download his tracks. And they're basically the uh, Butler BDRs with a few modifications. He He's pretty good about marking gas stops. And he adds one other element, which is called a, a meetup point or a donut. It's about every 20 or 30 miles. And so if you're riding with a group of two, three, or four guys, you ride individually, so you're not riding in their dust, but you agree to meet up at that donut, and it's marked well on the GPS. That's a great you, idea. It's, it's actually very good. You don't have to wait until the end of the day to find out one of your buddies is missing and then try and find him. For sure. The other thing is each day you have a choice. You can take the main route, which is the Butler BDR blue route, or... He's got green routes, which are bailout, usually paved routes. If you're running late, you get a flat. uh, The day gets away from you. You can always take the green so you get into your hotel that night. Or if you're feeling ambitious and you're riding a KTM 500, you can take the red route. There you go. That's what (laughs) they're made for. (laughs) Butler is pretty good about identifying the, the technically difficult routes. And Kevin, on his GPS tracks, has included 
I think all of them and probably added a few more. Got he it. also has things, go ahead. He also has things called out and backs, uh, where it may be a five or six mile out and back that uh, helps you get to the point that Butler may have pointed out. Um, so it, it's it's dirt simple to follow. You don't get lost. The major advantage of having a GPS track is you don't spend a lot of time backtracking. And as a result, you don't run out of gas. One of the major limitations on the BERs is having enough gas. Yeah, for sure. So, we've, we've talked about this on previous episodes. Now, most of us ride with oversized tanks, but we've yep. also utilized, uh, I don't know if you've seen these yet, giant loop fuel bags. They have them in you know ranges of one to five gallons, which can be somewhat awkward to carry from time to time. But if you get on sure. this lengthy stretch with no services, sure. uh, they definitely serve a purpose. So in terms of riding, uh, the Colorado BDR for me on a WR250R, I live in Maryland, and I've ridden all over the East Coast, and there's nothing quite like the Rocky Mountains. The uh, Colorado BDR goes from the southeast corner up to the north, I'm sorry, the southwest corner up to the northwest corner um, of Colorado, and it's essentially a, a linear. Um, what we did that was a little different is we did it as a loop because logistically it's easier to end up where you start, especially if you have a truck and a trailer sure. or a truck that transported. So um, you could look at the Butler BDR map. Um, it's hard to describe one, but if you imagine the square state of Colorado and you started in the lower left corner, you'd follow the spine of the Rocky Mountain pretty much through the middle, the left-hand middle of the state uh, up to Steamboat and then to the Wyoming border. And that would pretty much be the Butler BDR as it's generally known. We stopped at Steamboat and essentially made a return ride over a period of two days to get back to the start point, which was um, in the southwest corner. So on that return ride, did you just backtrack or did you have a separate set of tracks? or, or kind We of had a separate of set of tracks. Okay. And uh, some of it overlapped the, the uh, intersected with the, the ride up, if you like. Okay. And I'm, so, I'm happy to pull it up and, and find it if you'd like to discuss it in more detail. No, that's all right. We don't want to eat up a lot of your time. But um, just curious, how many days were you on the Colorado BDR, your loop ride? Uh, eight days. Eight days. Well, that's well, pretty – Yeah. And you rode with a chase vehicle like you explained the whole time. So you didn't have to weight your bikes down with right. a lot of extra stuff, right? And that's a real advantage in Colorado, where you have some pretty wonderful climbs. Okay, good, good point to note for the listeners. Um, as far as lodging goes, did you guys pull up in campsites every night, or did you utilize hotels or motels? We stayed in motels and we pre-booked those, and we shared motel rooms. And one of the things we did that was interesting is we rotated roommates every night. So if you're riding with your best buddy. <laughs> And, you know, after two nights of riding with him and two evenings in the same motel, you're tired of his jokes. Sure. You, you're, you're tired of his political views. And by changing roommates every night, it really adds a, a breath of fresh air. 
okay. to your endurance on a seven-day ride. So it's an interesting twist that Kevin came up with, and I, I found it to be delightful. So Duly noted for some of our tours, we're going to swap it up every night. Very good. Yeah. Um, WR250, how did that handle the Colorado BDR? I know that there is quite a following for that bike, but some might say maybe it's too small for out in the open. What do you think? I love the WR250R. I can't imagine a better bike for the BDRs for a variety of reasons. Um, the WR250R, most people consider it to be bulletproof. Uh, the first valve check is at 25,000 miles. I checked mine at 25,000, and it was within spec. Didn't Good need adjustment. Go. Good to go. I've got three WR250Rs. I've got one in Maryland, one in Utah, and one in California. And the, uh, two of them are 08s. One's a 13, but they're identical. They all have the extended range tank, uh, almost a four-gallon tank. And they all have something that I think makes us all a better rider. It's called a recluse clutch. Sure. And probably many of your listeners are familiar with a recluse, but for those that aren't, one of the real challenges in riding Colorado or Utah or many of these real backcountry rides is coming to a steep incline that's got loose rock. And if you stall, it's hard to get going. What the recluse does is it's like a centrifugal clutch. It doesn't really allow you to spin your wheel. And so you can go up steep grades much easier. Your anxiety level drops significantly when you approach those steep grades or loose gravel. And it, it just makes you a better rider. And about a year ago, Recluse introduced a clutch for the WR250R. As soon as they did, I installed it in my three bikes. And I can't believe how much difference it makes on the difficult stuff. On the open road, it's there's no difference. But Yeah, when you get into the technical sections, it's nice to have something to where, you know, you, you it doesn't doesn't really matter what gear you're in. Uh, nope. the, the clutch is going to keep modulating and moving you forward unless you're just in an in absurdly high gear. The engine's going to keep running and you'll maintain momentum and go over the top. It's really amazing. I recently got a KTM 500 EXC and I rode the Colorado and I rode the Utah again with the 500 and I was able to compare it with the WR250R and the KTM has a recluse as well and you know, I think the KTM is a bit better than the 250, but the 250 uh, keeps up well with the 500. It does everything the 500 does. The KTM only goes 70 miles an hour on the highway. The 500 will go 90, but who cares? That's not relevant to the BDRs. <laughs> no, not you for know? the most not for the most part. There aren't long parts of slab, and uh, <laughs> you know. Usually when I get out on the pavement on a BDR, I'm kind of taking a little bit of a break anyway. So Exactly. And you want to yeah. just relax and catch your breath. I think the yeah. fundamental difference between the two, the, the beauty of the WR250R is it weighs about 310 pounds dry. And, and that is so much better than most of the 650s or the big GSs. And I can't. And I, I'm an older guy. I have a GS. I can pick it up. But after I pick it up twice in a day, I'm done. Um, I can pick up my WR uh, multiple times when I need to. I mean, nobody likes to pick up their bike. But when I ride with GS riders, the first thing they want to do is swap bikes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe for they a see little how, bit, huh? <laughs> well, they see how easy it is to – how the, the WR has great suspension travel. It's light. 
it climbs everything and it just chugs along. It's it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, one one thing I enjoy about riding some of these smaller bikes, even even down to the 500 on these dual sport adventures, is I really believe you you've got a a larger window for error, right? You Absolutely. Know, if, if, if you get five six hundred pounds moving the wrong direction, it's hard to bring it yep. back. Uh, they're not fun to pick up. They're amazing machines, um, but you know it's it's just it's there's there's really no substitute for for lightweight and good handling machines out there. No. And the other advantage of something like a WR250R is you can buy one fully set up for these rides for $4,000. It's very, very easy on a GS to do $4,000 worth of damage on a BDR. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. That's uh, my my biggest concern with with large adventure bikes like that is when something goes wrong out there. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, It's much harder to get things off of there, to get where you need to get, to look at the problems. Uh, you know your Yamahas, your Hondas, your Kawasaki's. Pretty straightforward. Most of a, most of us have had those things down to the bare bones, and we we understand what we're working with, and we can usually diagnose the problem. But to start to dig into you know a twelve hundred cc adventure bike or something, that's another animal. Well, can I give you a quick example of that? Yeah, please. Uh, last week we were riding Baja from San Diego to Cabo, and one of the guys on a GS burned out his clutch thirty miles from the pavement. Um, that was now a significant burden to get that back. There were stream crossings, there were significant climbs and drops, and to get a four-wheel drive truck in there to rescue it, it wasn't anything you could fix there. The previous year, we were riding the Continental Divide. Uh, A guy had gotten a fairly new WR250R. We hit that mud that aggregates, locks up (laughs) your wheels. He tried to power through it, and he burned up his clutch. Again, we were 30 miles from pavement. On a WR, you pull off the side cover, you pull off the first clutch plate, you put a shoelace between the first and second clutch plate, and you drive out. Mm-hmm. And we've used that trick on uh, several bikes, the light little bikes, where you just add some thickness to the clutch plates, and you're back in business. Yeah, um, it's hard to do that on a GS. Yeah, it's just <laughs> some, something to be said for simplicity. And, you know, perhaps something goes wrong too. You know, there's a, there's a good chance you can get a bolt or get a part in a nearby town or something. When you start talking about BMWs and things like that, it's going right. to be much harder. Another another question about uh, Colorado and, and even Utah. We talked about this a uh, few episodes on the podcast, but how did you handle? Your food and your water. Did you just ride from you know restaurant to restaurant? Uh, how did you how did you carry your water? A lot of people would want to want to hear about that. So one of the major challenges in riding Utah, particularly, but also Colorado, is having enough water because um, you can easily get dehydrated. It's quite easy to go through a gallon of water riding in a day in Utah. What I encouraged my colleagues to do was to bring two two two-liter water bladders at a minimum on their rides. And Mm -hmm. if they they could bring more, I encouraged that. And part of the reason is there are places in Utah where you'll come across mountain bikers. And if you can offer them water, they never turn you down. (laughs) Sure. Good Samaritan. (laughs) It really is. And And it comes back in spades. So I encourage everybody to carry two two two-liter water uh, bladders. I use the uh, Moscow Moto 40-liter Reckless bag system. It's kind of like the Giant Loop. Yes, sir. 
And I don't like to carry a backpack. Okay. And so I, I put water bladders in the, uh, in the recluse side pockets. And it lowers the center of gravity. It's got plenty of storage room. And they're easy to access. Okay. Not so, yeah, quite we- as easy. Yeah, not quite as easy as having it on your back and having a tube right over your shoulder. But I just, uh, for me, I don't um, like that uh, water bladder on my back. Yes. Yeah, we di- we discussed that a couple episodes ago. And, and me, I'm a backpack guy. I do like having that over my back. But you're right. If you, you want to upsize those saddlebags or something along those lines, you do have the option to stow that water in there. So definitely a good point to consider. If you And there are a lot of people that don't like riding with a backpack on their back. I don't I don't know if I would even be able to recall the freedom I've been riding with one on my back for so long. Then with regard to food, what we try and do is we frequently pack snacks for lunch. So we'll take the time in the morning to have uh, a fairly substantial breakfast, and we'll plan to have an evening dinner, and then carry enough that we don't need to get lunch during the middle of the day. And that allows us to stop somewhere that's really pretty and have sort of a, you know, collection of snack bars or something that's not very substantial, but enough to keep your motor going. Um, If you have a big breakfast and a reasonable dinner, you really two meals a day is about all you need, as long as you stay hydrated. Sure. We discussed the importance of that a few episodes also. And uh, to your point, that gives you more time to, you know, stop at those big points of interest, take a few photos, take a break, whatever the case may be. But if you've got to rush, rush around and try to grab lunch sometimes, put your time in a bind. Yeah. And there are many places in Utah and Colorado where it's just not convenient. So I would say on those seven days, there are probably three, half of the days, three out of seven, where you can stop in a, in a reasonable place and have a nice lunch. Okay. Now... Before we uh, before we move on to Utah, speaking of Utah, any advice or tips for anybody that's going to set out and try the Colorado BDR next year for their first time? Um, yeah, I guess I would encourage you to do it certainly after June when the passes are open. And I would do it before it gets too late in October when it starts to get cold and snowing. I think the best time to do Colorado is the end of August, the first of the first week of September, um, in part because hunting season hasn't started yet, <laughs> and in part because it can snow in August in, at the altitudes. So, you know, I, I think if you're lucky enough to choose when you go, I would go August, September. If you're not, go whenever you can. <laughs> no, you know, and, and don't, yeah. You're to- don't, you're to- don't be delayed just because the the timing isn't perfect. It's never going to be perfect. No, and it's never. It's worst never, case is you backtrack. Yeah, it'll never be that seamless. I when I went to uh, when I rode Idaho this year, I didn't know that it was the start of their hunting season. I was as I was riding, and on that particular Friday, <laughs> you know, out there on these these you know backcountry remote roads, I'm meeting people. I met. I tell you, I met more side by sides on that ride than I met. Uh, you know, people doing the dual sport adventure ride. So, you know, point well taken. If you can steer around those hunting seasons, it'll ultimately be a lot safer for you. Yeah. And it's not just the safety, but it's the, you know, coming across um, hunters is is kind of upsetting for them. For sure. Yeah. Uh, Let's spin over and talk a little bit about Utah. You'd mentioned to me you think Utah rivals Patagonia, so you definitely have some strong feelings about 
the scenery on this ride. What can you tell us? So I got back to riding about eight years ago. I got a GS. I live in Maryland. My first big ride was across Labrador, Newfoundland, Nova Scotia. I loved it. I thought it was great. I couldn't believe you could have so much fun riding a motorcycle. The next year, I went to Bolivia and rode Bolivia, Argentina, and Chile back and forth across the Andes down to Tierra del Fuego, Ushuaia, on a BMW 650. And I, I loved it. I thought Patagonia was the most unbelievable place I'd ever been. And then three years ago, I rode in Utah. And I thought Utah was kind of like dry and, and yeah, the canyons were there, but so what? And then I did the Utah BDR and my jaw dropped. I couldn't believe that you could go from a, a deep canyon at 98 degrees to a 11,000 foot pass in three hours where the temperature dropped probably 50 degrees. <laughs> I mean, it, it was just magnificent. There was so much of Utah that I just didn't know was there. And so over the last couple of years, I've done three or four rides in Utah. And the more I ride there, the more I marvel at the, the riding diversity and the geography and the geology and the culture and the history. Um, and it's, it's interesting because it's so much more accessible than Patagonia. Patagonia is massive, but the distances are large as well. And Utah seems to be this remarkably self-contained state that is just full of diversity, um, especially for somebody who's interested in riding dirt and gravel like I am. Very interesting. Yeah, I think that's kind of what, what we're all searching for. Uh, we, we don't want to just pound down the same section of road every day. We're looking for variety in the terrain and then obviously variety in the scenery. What was your... As far as the Utah BDR is concerned, what do you think is the uh, the highlight of that ride, if you had to choose one? Gosh, you know, um, I think the first three days. <laughs> so I, I would say the lower half. Um, so, you know, the, the Utah, Utah BDR starts down in a little village called Mexican Hat, and it's sound in the southeast corner of Utah. It's on the San Juan River. And it's about 20 miles from the Arizona border. Have you, have you ridden the Utah BDR? Uh, no. No, I have not yet. So what are you doing the uh, last week of August? Uh, I have a – I actually have a tour scheduled for Colorado. Uh, but if something doesn't work out there, I will just meet you down at Mexican Hat. How about the first week of September? Same thing. We've got a, we've got a collection of tours. I'm actually – I believe my Utah tour is scheduled uh, a week okay. before the Colorado, late August. But um, if things don't work out, let's just tie up. Okay. Well, I'd be happy to talk to you. I'm thinking about doing it in the spring as well. So the Utah BDR is truly amazing. You start out in Mexican hat, and the first day has three days' worth of stuff. And you kind of have to squeeze it all in, so you got to start early. One of the things that's recommended is that you backtrack to the Arizona border and you ride through Monument Valley. And most people know Monument Valley because that's where nearly all of the Westerns were filmed in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And it's actually Navajo land, and it's really beautiful. It's just magnificent. But you could easily spend two hours in Monument Valley, and your morning's pretty much shot, right? Anyway, what we do is we encourage people to arrive a day early in Mexican Hat and spend the afternoon in Monument Valley. There are several advantages of that. 
One is the sun is really spectacular late in the afternoon. Um, the scenery is magnificent and you're not rushed because you, you don't have some place you have to be so you can really enjoy it. And then we have, you know, we, we choose to start the BDR officially at Mexican Hat and go north as opposed to backtracking. And then as soon as you leave Mexican Hat, there's this wonderful rock formation called, surprisingly, Mexican Hat. <laughs> <laughs> and you can actually ride up to it and ride around it. And it's this huge rock just sort of suspended in air. And it must weigh, I don't know a gazillion pounds and it looks like a mexican hat from a distance it's really it's pretty spectacular you wander up the road and you take a left and you go through something called the valley of the gods and the valley of the gods is kind of like monument valley but it's different and it's a route that goes through the valley of the gods it's a dirt road you could probably ride it in a camry uh there's nobody there and it's probably 15 or 20 miles and it's just a uh, wandering through these um, high rock structures that are spectacular. You get back to the road, the main route. I don't remember what the name, I think it's Route 261. And then you take an immediate left and you go to a state park called Goosenecks of the hmm. San Juan. And the Goosenecks of the San Juan, uh, the San Juan is the river, and the goosenecks are this wonderful, uh, like, Grand Canyon that loops back and forth and back and forth. And it's got uh, four loops, and you just stand on the edge, and you look a 1,000 feet down, and you see these magnificent canyons in front of you. And it's a tiny little state park, you know. You wouldn't know it was there unless somebody told you to go. And you look at it, and it's, it's as spectacular as looking at the Grand Canyon. It's really magnificent. You wander back up the road, and you've probably heard about the Moki Dugway. Yes. So sure. the Moki Dugway, the Mexican hat is down on what you'd call the valley floor. And above it is, uh, if you go north, probably 20 miles from Mexican hat, there's a huge mesa called Cedar Mesa. And the Moki Dugway gets you from the valley floor to the Cedar Mesa. And it's Back and forth, back and forth, uh, hairpin, dirt road, um, great twisties. And it's just one of those engineering marvels where you said, gosh, that was so much fun. Let's go ride it again. <laughs> one of the things most people don't know is three quarters of the way up, there's no place to pull over on the Moki Dugway, so it's hard to get a good photo. Three quarters of the way up, there's a little place to pull over. You walk 100 feet and you look over the back edge and you see the entire Valley of the Gods. And it's a spectacular view. And you say, you know, this day is complete. And it's 9 o'clock, right? <laughs> yeah, you got still got a lot of miles to cover. There's a lot to see, huh? Right. And then you get to the top of the Moki Dugway, and there's this little out and back called Muley Point. And you ride four or five miles down this sandy stretch, and you get to this overlook where you look over the entire valley floor for probably 50, 60, 70, 80 miles. And in the distance, oh, wow. you see the San Juan River, and it's a 270-degree view. And it's, it's stunning. It's absolutely stunning. And you say, gosh, you know, I've, I've probably traveled less than uh, 40 miles today, and I've had the ride of my life. And yet the ride's in front of you. <laughs> Oh, geez. Got to go. Right? Got to get down there. 
Yeah. yeah. I'm so then you ride twenty five. You, you ride twenty five miles up the road, and you have to make a choice. Are you going to take a right and go see some Indian petroglyphs, or are you going to go straight for ten miles and go to Monument Valley? Many people have heard of Monument Valley, but it's a collection of these naturally occurring arches, and it's it's a beautiful national monument. And you can choose to go there, or you can choose to take the blue route and go through the uh, uh, the Indian ruins and, and see some of the stone carvings. I don't know. I uh, there's nothing bad. You can choose either one. Um, it's it's all good fun. It's great riding. We rode it the end of uh, I'm sorry, the beginning of September. And I think that's probably the, – the problem with Utah is it gets really hot in southern Utah. Yeah. So June and July are unbearable. The heat is just – it's over it's overpowering. So you really need to wait. June, July, August is pretty brutal. Early September, September, October uh, are really good for Utah. The challenge in Utah is the hunting season starts – uh, the middle of October or late September, depending on bow, bow or gun. So um, I would recommend uh, September for riding the Utah BDR if you okay. can. Yeah, that's, a, um, that's some good tips there. And uh, the Moki Dugway, too. I'm, like I said, I'm scribbling down these notes so I don't miss these. <laughs> well, I can send you a link. Uh, okay. You can just go to the GPS Kevin Adventures website, and it's all there. And you can yeah, download we'll, it for free. Yeah, we'll you take just a look at We'll take a look at that, and then um, with every episode, I put together some show notes for the listeners, so so we'll have hyperlinks okay. to all that stuff, too. Uh, one one question that kind of came up for me, anything particularly challenging for you on the Utah BDR? I know there's some technical sections out there, and uh, do you have any insight on that stuff? Right. So the first day ends in Monticello, and you do some fairly high mountain in the Monte LaSalle range on the afternoon of that first day. And none of that is very technical. None of it's very demanding. I, I think what's probably a challenge is that first day is about 200 miles. Okay. And there's so many places to stop that you really need to get started early. You, you really need to put your side stand up at 7 o'clock. Okay. Because you don't want to ride at night. And, <laughs> and if you encounter a flat, it's nice to know you got an hour to spare. Sure, you got a little bit of buffer time. Right. So we yeah, drop they, down into Monticello, which is what I think Butler recommends, and we spend the night at one of the cheap motels there. And there are plenty of wonderful places to eat, dinner and breakfast. They're all really fine, reasonable, good quality. So to your point about are there technical difficulties, uh, the second day, um, the BDR gives you a choice. Uh, you can go over LaSalle Pass, which is sort of the blue route. If you think about heading out of Monticello, you you head to the east. Or you can go through what's known as Lockhart Basin. And many people have heard of Lockhart Basin um, because it's kind of like, I don't know, uh, the Mount Everest of Utah. It's not because it's high, but because it's technically difficult. It's got a number of uh, steps down and steps up that are difficult on big bikes and a lot of fun on little bikes. Little bikes being 250s and 500s, big bikes being bigger than that. (laughs) (laughs) And so 
Lockhart Basin to me is one of the most fun rides I've done in Utah. Um, before you start that, there's something called Newspaper Rock, which is the richest deposit of petroglyphs probably in the world. And it's different cultures that have deposited these symbols. And you can get to the Newspaper Rock. It's probably 20 miles outside of Monticello on both the, the LaSalle Mountain Pass and the Lockhart Basin route. I would strongly encourage people to go to Newspaper Rock because it's just such a beautiful eye-opener to see all the different symbols from the last 4,000 years. Lockhart Basin uh, can be very hot, can be very trying. Um, the distance where it's technically difficult is probably restricted to 20 miles. But two years ago, I spent... I think we spent nine hours doing that 20 miles <laughs> with with big bikes. Okay. One of the guys had a big KTM. It was new when he started. Uh, when it finished, it was totaled. Yep. Um, one of the guys bashed his uh, bash plate on his GS, which pushed in his oil pan. Ooh. Um, and the guys in the little bikes were smiling the whole way. They were having a blast. You know, I've, I've seen a lot of videos from Lockhart, and I see yep. a lot of um, guys on big bikes riding them through there. And I don't know if it's yep. if it's meant to be a badge of courage or anything. I I don't think I'd have much problem riding a big bike through there. But sometimes I ask myself why you would why would you do the, it? Why Why would you take one of those beautiful machines through yeah. there and beat the crap out of them? So yeah, what's the point? Yeah. And for those that are interested in Lockhart Basin and you have a big bike, what I would encourage you to do is to ride the LaSalle Pass, enjoy the Blue Route, get to Moab, and then ride Lockhart Basin backwards. Just out of Moab, you can go over Hurrah Pass, and you can go into Lockhart Basin down to something called Chicken Corners. And that'll give you a flavor for it without giving you the the big rock beating. And it's it's probably only 20 miles outside of Moab, but you get to see a lot of the beauty of Lockhart Basin without having any of the, the really difficult technical stuff that ruins your bike. So I think you can say you've done Lockhart Basin, if not in its entirety, <laughs> <laughs> if that's your badge. Do you know what okay. I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. Again, uh, you know, you, you set off on these adventures. It, it's, it's a man and a machine thing, right? So you've got to keep yeah. all that together. Um, I, I know I'd want to experience Lockhart Basin, but I wouldn't want to sacrifice my trip or, or anybody right. else's by doing something stupid in there. So definitely, definitely good advice. The other thing we did on our second year on the Utah BDRs, we added a rest day in Moab. And you might ask yourself, why, why on your second, on your, essentially your, your third day is it a rest day? And, and the reason is not to rest. But there is so much to ride in Moab. There's something called the White Rim Trail, which is a 100-mile trail that goes around Canyonlands. And it's probably one of the most awesome 100-mile rides you'll ever do in your life. You're up about 1,000 feet above the Colorado and Green River, and you're about 1,000 feet below the um, Canyonlands Mesa. And mountain bikers have made this uh, a four-day ride. But you can do it on a on a bike in eight hours, and essentially it's a big circle, and it is just terrific. 
So the reason we added a rest day in Moab is so people could do that. There are also other things in Moab, like, um, have you heard of Slick Rock? Oh, yes, yes. So there's this area uh, to the east of Moab that's called Sand Flats, and there are a variety of popular rides there that are relatively short, 5, 10 miles. Um, One of them is called Slick Rock. There's another one called Fins and Things. And these are incredibly grippy rock rides, um, essentially sand dunes that got compressed and turned into rock. And they have the the traction of sh- of sand without any of the slipperiness, if you can imagine that. Yeah, and that's interesting. It's it's a lot of fun to ride, especially on a smaller bike with a recluse. <laughs> do I do yeah. I sound like a recluse dealer? <laughs> kind of. I think we need to get them on here for a sponsorship. You're going to keep pumping them up, I and mean, you got three of them. But no, I. Again, recluse, if you're struggling out there a little bit with, with technical sections, that's probably the answer. It is. It, it really, it's it's amazing. If you're an older rider and you get anxious about climbs, uh, eliminating that. Sure. So, so you asked me what was my favorite part. I would say, you know, Mexican hat to Monticello to Moab and then the rest day in Moab. And if, if that's all you did, if you had three days to spend, you could die and go to heaven then. It's that good. <laughs> that sounds like, a, sounds like an opportunity for me just on an extended weekend. So It is. Maybe we'll look If you go to that. GPS Kevin Adventure Rides, mm-hmm. he, he's got a dozen uh, GPS files for rides from Moab. Oh, wow. So you can just okay. go download those and go do those rides. You just plug it into your GPS and you follow the track, and it's it's dirt simple. And while while we're talking about it, uh, we've we've talked about navigation on the podcast before. Do you use a GPS or using a phone app or? So phones work. The problem with phones, there are two problems with phones: is they're not built to be bounced around on a handlebar of a motorcycle. Mm-hmm. And two, the screen isn't bright enough to see in the bright light of the sun. The, the Garmin GPSs are built like bricks, and they're rugged. Uh, there's a lot of criticism of Garmin because they're software and all of that. But I actually run two Garmins. I run one Garmin that's zoomed in and another one that's zoomed out. And the reason I do that is the one that's zoomed in is at a 200-foot level. Mm-hmm. So so when I come up to a split in the track, I know whether I'm going left or right. And the one that's zoomed out gives me an overview of what's ahead. The other thing is, you know, everything fails. And if you have one GPS that fails, you don't worry about it. you got a backup. The third no, point I- I'd make is you can buy uh, a GPS. It doesn't have to be a $500 motorcycle GPS. You can buy a car GPS, a Nuvi, and uh-huh. waterproof the screen with a little silicone. So you can buy a 50 or 60 or $70 GPS mounted on your motorcycle, and it'll work fine. Yeah, that's a great tip. And, and to your point about you know technology and things failing, when I rode through Idaho, I did navigate with a phone, though. Like you mentioned, I've heard that that vibration is hard on the connections, but I had a cell phone. I had a small GPS, and I also rode with a Garmin inReach, so better safe so, than sorry. Yeah, for those for those listeners who don't know about the inReach, I think you might consider having a whole show on safety. I think the inReach is, is kind of a revolutionary device. This ride we did last week on in Baja, we had 
total of 24 guys, but they're riding in groups of two, three, or four, and eight of them, eight of us had inReach. And the number of failures and difficulties that were communicated over the inReach were just, it was wonderful. You knew somebody was late, but they were okay. You knew somebody was late because they fried their clutch. You know, you didn't have to guess. And, and you could arrange to have connections and help and, and support for things that aren't major. They're not life-threatening. But it would essentially cost you the whole next day of riding if you, if you didn't de- deal with it quickly. So over and above the safety factor, the logistic support that an inReach or an inReach-like device provides is, is really worth uh, investing in. Yeah, it allows, uh, you know, chase people to track you down. Or like you said, a lot of those instances where maybe somebody stopped and took a break for 20 minutes and they communicated that to you through the inReach, those are the types yep. of things where you end up backtracking and the next thing you know, it's it's almost dark and you got 100 miles to go. So right. uh, not not only does it carry with it a fair amount, uh, you know, a peace of mind, which I enjoyed, obviously when you don't have cell phone service, you can yep. still send messages and things. So. It is a very powerful tool in my mind. I don't even, I won't even drive in the drive in the woods anymore without my inReach with me. Yeah, and I think you know once you learn how to use it, it, it's pretty simple. It's like using your your phone. Essentially, you text on your phone. It Bluetooths to your inReach. It goes to the satellite, and that that'll communicate to any cell, any Gmail, any yeah. any other inReach. It's it's the other thing I carry for peace of mind is something called an ePerb. You ever heard of an EPIRB? E-P-I-R-B? I've heard of an EPIRB. I hope you'll educate us. Well, so um, I'm concerned about safety, and an EPIRB is an Emergency Personal Identification Rescue Beacon, E-P-I-R-B, and it comes from the sailing community. You can imagine if you're out sailing and your boat starts to sink, you want a you want a quick response. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so an EPIRB is a device that costs about two hundred and seventy-five dollars, and it has one function. It calls the cavalry. It says, I have a life-threatening situation and I need the cavalry. And it works anywhere around the world. You buy it. There's no annual fee. The battery in it's good for five years. And what's interesting about the EPIRB is it goes up to a satellite. It sends your coordinates, your GPS coordinates. It goes down to a tracking station. They figure out who has jurisdiction, whether it's the Coast Guard or the Park Service um, Homeland Security, whoever has jurisdiction for where that GPS coordinate's coming from, they contact them and they say, there's a life-threatening situation, you got to send the cavalry. And the other advantage of the EPIRB is it's got about five times the radio power of the inReach. Okay. So if you're in fog or you're in a forest or you're in a canyon the likelihood of reaching the satellite is actually much higher with an EPIRB than with a, an inReach. Oh, that, that's a very important note there. Right. And, and you know, my feeling is uh, they're good for 10 years. For $275, um, it's worth it. $27 a year to know I can call the cavalry at the push of a button. Now, the inReach has an SOS button, but having two in case one fails. Anyway. Sure. No, and I mean, I think these these are obviously lightweight solutions either. They're not going to weigh you down. And again, it's, no. it's peace of mind. If you're riding solo, uh, now that I know about the EPIRB, I would highly re- recommend that you do carry both for sure. Just the only thing piece. about the EPIRB is you have to register it with NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Ad- Administration, but it's a free registration. 
and it gives them your contact information. So when that signal goes off, it's a unique identifier to you, and they can contact your emergency contacts. So Okay. Yeah, great information. And uh, I'll do a little bit of research on that, and again, we'll put some uh, hyperlinks in the show notes to the curve. Cool. All right, Keith, I know I I think you're up against the wall for time. I believe you said 5 p.m.? Yeah, the— um, the, I'm happy to continue for another whatever fits your schedule. But um, the only thing that we did, the first time we rode the Utah BDR, we went to the Idaho border, essentially Bear Lake. And the second time, we stopped at the Wyoming border and made a circle back to Mexican Hat. And on that circle back, we added some really fun sections that aren't on the BDR. Um, we went through a number of canyons and washes and in state parks that are really terrific. Um, so I would encourage folks, if they have seven or eight days to spend on the Utah BDR, that they look at, at some of the add-ons they can do to the Utah BDR to, to make it a circle. And I'm happy to send you a link so you can add it to your site. Because uh, yeah, there's, be so there's so much to see in Utah. It's just, it's really magnificent. Now, I haven't been to Bear Lake, but I flew over it one time. It looked pretty massive from the sky. Have you had it a chance is. to kind of hang out there? Yeah, and and the ride up to there, Monte Cristo through the through the forest, it, is really quite pretty. But um, it's kind of a long way to go for a pretty ride. Mm-hmm. Utah is kind of a long state, and so you know by stopping at the Wyoming border, we saved a day and we spent that day in the southern part of Utah. Okay. And it allowed us to go to the Henry Mountains. It allowed us to go through Glen Canyon. It allowed us to go through Buckhorn Wash, Devil's Racetrack. There's a place in central Utah that is called uh, the Dinosaur Quarry. (laughs) Hmm. And it's the richest deposit of dino bones in the world. And it was kind of like a mud pit where all the dinos collapsed, but the bones are just stacked on each other. And it's oh, a wow. fascinating place. And it, it's right it's it's right in the middle of nowhere. Um, it's, so it's, it's actually not far from a place called The Wedge, which is the mini Grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just part of the richness of Utah that you wouldn't know is there unless you stumbled across it. The, uh, the dinosaur quarry gets 5,000 visitors a year. Interesting. That, do, for, that doesn't seem like a lot, really. It's, it, I mean, more people go to the air and space men's room every day here in Washington. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Now, is that, an, is that an active site where they're, they're removing bones or is it just untouched? Yeah. No, they've got a couple of uh, buildings over the work site. They're talking about turning it into a national monument. But that designation hasn't happened yet. Huh. Oh, that, i got to add that to my list, too. Very interesting. Well, you know, I'm happy to send you a list of all these wonderful places that you should visit. It's, you know, Utah to me is so dense and so rich and so wonderful that uh, it rivals Patagonia, if I hadn't said that once or twice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was the statement that stood out. So I know I, I knew we needed to hear about that from you. So very interesting. Do you, uh, do you ever do single track? I do. Single track is, is my favorite. Uh, we do that quite okay. a bit. You know, it's getting harder and harder to come by here in this state. But um, What state we, are you in? Uh, we live in Oregon here. Okay. 
So Utah and Colorado, uh, you could easily spend a week doing single track there, and it's awesome. I spent a week last year doing single track in Utah. And what we would do there is we'd spend two or three nights in one location and do day rides out and back. Sure. Uh, so if you'd like to ride the Utah BDR and then follow it with a week of single track, send me a note. Yeah, that sounds like a horrible time. <laughs> yeah, it's really awful. And if you'd like to do – have you done the Colorado BDR? No, I have not. I've done okay, – so uh, yeah, I've been on Oregon and Idaho, and I think I'm going to go down to uh, the new SoCal BDR here at the start of January. Okay. Um, if you'd like to do Colorado BDR and then follow it with a week of single track, let me know. I did that two years ago. And the, the Colorado BDR was a great warm-up, and then the Colorado single track just kicked my butt. It was so <laughs> much fun. But, you know, the and I've got some GPS files for all of that. They're available on Kevin's site. Um, there was something, yeah, so we could talk about that. But both of those states are great for single track. It's just spectacular. So if you go out and, you know, you ride a BDR like that, and then you follow it up with some single track – what are you doing in terms of bike maintenance over the course of two weeks? So on a WR, um, nothing. On a KTM 500, uh, you change your filters, change the oil. Sure. But, um, you know, the major problem is actually leaky fork seals. And we have this little tool to clean the crud out of the seal so you don't actually have to replace the seal. You've probably seen these little finger-like things you wrap around your forks. Yeah, and I've used thin credit cards in the past, and uh, yep. you can even throw, uh, I believe they're called seal savers or something, over the top. Um, I don't right. particularly and enjoy the feel that that provides with the forks, but... Yeah. But yeah. Well, there's this great little tool that costs about five bucks, and it, and it looks kind of like a cylinder, and it's got a pointy little bit. I think you can get it from Rocky Mountain ATV, and it just clamps onto your fork, and you just slide it up under the seal, and you twist it around, and it's, a, it's like a, a finger picking the the nose if you like mm -hmm. of your fork seal and it pulls all that crud down and it, it works for most uh leaks that aren't significant sure huh. so i'd recommend that um rather than trying to do fork seals between rides that'd be tough uh, but you know on bikes like ours ktm 500s and the wr the forks are pretty simple if you did have a, a seal yep. and some oil wouldn't be wouldn't be something that I'd wanted to, but we could get it done if we had to. Can I tell you something else? I got lots I, of time. <laughs> I, I live in Maryland, and for me, riding out in Utah and Colorado and Arizona and Nevada is, is spectacular. It's really lovely. It's wonderful. I can't say enough about it. But to set up the time and to get the logistics, there's a real commitment. you got to take the time off of work. you got to get out there and... And so what I do when I go for a week-long ride with my buddies is we bring an extra bike. I have a backup WR250R that we, we, we carry on the chase vehicle. And that way, if somebody's KTM craps out, no offense, KTM. Hey, hey. <laughs> if, if somebody's bike craps out and we can't fix it, you haven't lost the whole rest of the week. We just take the backup bike, and okay, so it may not be a 500, it's a 250, but it's still 98% of the ride. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and you're still riding. You're still and you're still riding. riding. So, yep. so we do our best to provide backup tires and all of that, but sometimes you just need a backup bike. 
Sure. And the beauty of having a three or four thousand dollar backup bike is it's not a big deal. Yep. Anyway, that's that's one of the things I provide when I ride with my buddies, and, and they they really appreciate the value of that. This this last Utah ride. Oh, thank you, Betty. This last Utah ride, uh, one of the guys was riding a BMW 650X Country, and he had a mechanical that just wasn't readily resolved, re- readily repaired. If we could run to the BMW shop and get the parts, yeah, we could fix it, but just wasn't one convenient. So he just hopped on the 250. What was funny is he didn't want to get back off the 250. <laughs> when he got home... He sold his 650 and bought a 250. Okay, so that was <laughs> that was going to be my follow-up question. Will we see him next year on the 250? But but that question has been answered. So with a recluse, <laughs> there you go. Hey, he's checking all the boxes. There you go. Right. Yeah, and I, I think that's you know the market's kind of moving that way too, right? We're seeing downsized adventure bikes this year, and in years to come, uh, those those larger bikes they're amazing, but you know for the average guy. It's just too much, right? Well, John, I'm sure you've heard the the joke. What's the right number of bikes for a guy? It's N plus one, where N is the number you currently have. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've heard the joke. Yeah. yeah. So, I, you know, when I give a talk about the different safety features that I, I use, these donuts as meetup points, the EPIRB, the InReach, One of the things I try to stress to GS riders is, you know, don't sell your GS or your 1190. These are awesome motorcycles, and they were designed to do adventure riding that that is pretty terrific. But if you want to do this backcountry BDR stuff, go out and buy a, a 250. You'll ride it for four or five years, and you'll sell it for 50% of what you paid for it. But the pleasure and the joy and... And the fun you're going to have on these smaller bikes just can't can't happen on a big GS. And I'm a GS owner, and I love my GS. But you know the the amount of joy you get out of these small bikes, and it it's just hard to communicate until you ride one, and then you say, "Holy smokes, this is what I did when I was 15," and put the <laughs> smile on my face. A little bit of nostalgia there. A lot of nostalgia, and your your smile doesn't fit in your helmet. You know? <laughs> All There's right. another footnote there, which is, you know, riding a 250 in Mexico, nobody thinks you're very rich. Nobody bothers you. You ride a GS in Mexico, ooh, Target. Huh? we don't have those bikes here, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, has this been helpful? This has been very helpful, Keith, and I was just going to ask before you got to go, any parting shots, any advice for somebody who is looking to get out on an adventure and maybe hasn't been on one? So, gosh, the, you know, for me, the hardest part of any adventure ride, I mean, it sounds trivial, but the hardest part of any adventure ride is getting out the front door of your house. Sure. There are lots of reasons not to go. You don't have the right bike. You don't have the right gear. It's the wrong time of year. You don't have buddies to ride with. You're not sure about security or safety. I think the the secret is just getting one or two buddies Make a commitment and, and be conservative in what you're going to try and do. And realize that there, this is the beginning of a whole bunch of adventure rides. And, and maybe you won't do all of the Transamerica Trail or all of the Continental Divide or all of the Colorado BDR. But if you got 
three days experience, you'd be better prepared to do it again. And, and so I would say, as soon as you can get out, go out, you know, get one or two buddies, do your planning, get your bike ready, but, but don't wait for the perfect bike or the perfect weather, you know, it's not coming. ride what you've got. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> no. And, it's, and, you know, if you get to a road that's too difficult, you turn around and find an easier route. <clears throat> yeah. I, I, I have not had any – I've had a lot of challenging situations, but I've not had any adventure that I've been on that I wish that – I, that I would say I wish I hadn't done. There's not a single adventure I've been on, and that's just over the last eight years. It's every adventure. My attitude is when the adversity strikes – is when the real adventure begins. That's correct. That is correct. And for me, that's that's the not necessarily the fun part, but it's it's the most challenging part, and it's all worked out for me. So I hope this has been helpful. Yeah, um, Keith. I'm happy to send you some links. I'm happy to invite you along uh, the Utah BDR, uh, Utah Single Track, Colorado BDR, Colorado Single Track. We're currently working on a Continental Divide ride that goes from the uh, Mexico-Guatemala border up to the Arctic. Wow. Yeah. So it's not just the U.S. Continental Divide, but it's the Canadian Continental Divide and the Mexican Continental Divide, broken into three two-week portions. Well, we need to stay in touch. I mean, I'd be interested in all of those rides for sure. Okay. Sounds great, John. And Keith, awesome interview. I thank you for coming on. Uh, yeah. I'll probably well, have I'll probably have it out in a few weeks, but you know, tons great. of value, tons of knowledge. Let me know if there's anything else I can help you with. Delighted to talk to you. Thanks for everything. Okay. Thank you for See your ya. time. Bye. Bye. Wow, great interview, great guest. One more time, Keith. Thank you for coming on, telling those stories, and really sharing your experience and your knowledge. I'm I'm eternally grateful uh, for the time that we got to chat. And I know you and I talk for. 20, 30 minutes before I started recording, but I think all of us had an opportunity to learn, uh, you know, quite a few things in a short period of time. So perhaps we need to get you back on here to talk about riding in Patagonia or the Continental Divide. Uh, I think odds are you and I are going to tie out two, three, maybe four times in 2019 and, and do some rides together. Obviously that Continental Divide ride to the Arctic, very appealing, something that I would be very interested in doing, uh, but not to be outdone. Utah BDR followed by Utah single track, Colorado BDR followed by Colorado single track. That's definitely something that uh, I could uh, I could get used to. Let's just say that. www.benmotorcycleadventures.com. If you'd like to go back through previous podcasts, check out the notes I put in for each show. Simply click that blog link in the upper right hand corner, and you can also check out every uh, written blog post I've ever made too. Speaking of the website, I know you guys are out there. I know you want to go on a motorcycle adventure. I know you want to go on an off-road ride in Oregon. As a matter of fact, I just released a new ride for 2019. It's called Alpine. This particular ride takes place on May 31st and June 1st of 2019. It's in eastern Oregon. There's a lot of single track. It's off-road only. It's not dual sport. Let's get 8, 10, 12 people signed up for this thing, and let's go have a good time in eastern Oregon on a dirt bike. So again, Alpine. Check that out. And I think that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. Next week, we will be speaking with Adam Dick from Demata Creative. He is the creator of the Trail Essentials Pouches, 
which I love to use. I use three or four of them on every ride. So that's what you guys have to look for. And that's it. I'm out of here. Again, thanks for listening. We will see you next time. Bye.